Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I am presenting a series of programs on the book of Acts, and today's program is a continuation of the previous broadcast. In the previous broadcast, I was speaking about Acts chapter 18. In Acts chapter 18, at the end of Acts chapter 18, Paul was beginning to go out on his third missionary journey. But before he arrived in Ephesus, there was another man by the name of Apollos who came to Ephesus and spoke at the synagogue there. Now, when Apollos had come to Ephesus, to the synagogue, there were two people who were already there, Priscilla and Aquila, who were very familiar with the gospel, who were familiar with the Apostle Paul, who spent a lot of time with the Apostle Paul ministering to other people. They were there in the synagogue. So when Apollos came, they pulled him aside to explain to him the way of God or the gospel a little bit more accurately, with much more detail. It says that Apollos only knew about the baptism of John. Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and explained to him the baptism of the Lord Jesus, that is the restoration of the Holy Spirit that had been lost in Adam so that we can actually be saved. But what were Priscilla and Aquila doing there in the synagogue? If they understood the gospel so well, then why would they be there? What were they doing there? Were they not there telling people about the Messiah? Were they not there telling people about the Lord Jesus already? There's an indication that they were not that active in communicating their faith there in the synagogue. They could have very well been communicating their faith in the marketplace quite often. However, in the synagogue, it appears that they were not speaking about the Lord Jesus that often. I'm suggesting that only because they're still there. If they were aggressively telling people about the Lord Jesus, eventually the people in the synagogue would have come to a point where they would have decided that they were going to believe or they were not going to believe, that there would be a point of determination, a point of conviction, where the people would make their choice. At that point, there would be no need for Priscilla and Aquila to continue to evangelize the people there. Instead, they should just simply leave and continue somewhere else, making better use of their time someplace else. And so I can't help but wonder what they were doing there, why they were there, what their involvement was there in the synagogue, and how the people welcomed them or did not welcome them as a result of their belief in the Lord Jesus. Another thing that I find very interesting is that there is this man named Apollos who is actively going about telling people about the Lord Jesus as the Messiah. And while Apollos was actively involved in telling other people about the Lord Jesus, apparently he had never come in contact with the Apostle Paul, or he had never come in contact with people who had been discipled by the Apostle Paul. This is very interesting to note because it does go to show that there were many people in the world at this time, there were many people that people could reach out to who did not know about the Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul was certainly very active in going out into various places, various cities, various communities to speak about the Lord Jesus. But as we look through the historical record, of the Apostle Paul reaching out to different people, we find that he did not minister to a large number of people 
in the communities that he went to visit. And so noticing that, it's very easy to see that there could be others who could be going around into other parts of the same cities, the same communities, to speak with other people that the Apostle Paul did not have an opportunity to speak with, and they would be able to tell them about the Lord Jesus, and they would start little home fellowships or churches. They could begin building their own communities of people who believe in the Lord Jesus as the Messiah. It appears that that was taking place, especially through the ministry of Apollos. And while Apollos did not have a complete understanding of the gospel, up to this point, he certainly could have still been reasonably effective in telling other people about the Lord Jesus, and people could have at least turned towards the Lord Jesus as the Messiah to pursue a relationship with him, to pursue a knowledge and understanding of him. And while they may not be saved, they certainly would be encouraged to pursue the things of the Lord, to pursue a knowledge and an understanding of the scriptures, to pursue a knowledge and understanding of the living God, who would eventually, I am confident, he would eventually revealed to them what they would need to know in order to be saved. And so I wanted to mention these small details just to give you more evidence that the Lord can be actively involved in other people's lives through other people, that the Apostle Paul was not the only one back then, and just as we can look at people today as being members of a very small group of people who are actively reaching out to other people, there still are many people out there who we do not know of, who are actively ministering to other people on a smaller scale, but certainly no less effective in terms of assisting people in knowing the living God, which is the most important, regardless of how many people we may know of who are being affected by the ministry of others. That doesn't mean anything, because the most important thing is that the message is continuing to go out into the world and that there are people who receive the message, who then turn to the Lord Jesus, and who will begin to grow and mature in their faith if they are born again by the Spirit of God. Now, in Acts chapter 19, we have the description of Paul returning to Ephesus. And when he returned to Ephesus, he found a number of disciples. He found some disciples. And in Acts chapter 19, verse 2, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. So the Apostle Paul comes into the region of Ephesus, and he finds some people who identify themselves as Christians. He finds people who identify themselves as being people of the way, as people who believe in the Lord Jesus. But when he speaks with them, he discovers that these people are not saved. They may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but that is not enough to be saved. Because salvation is not just believing in Jesus, it's also believing in what Jesus came to give. And it's also receiving what Jesus came to give. And that is the Holy Spirit. That is the restoration of the Holy Spirit that had been lost in Adam. The problem between us and God is not that we did not believe in Jesus, The problem between us and God is that we were dead. We were spiritually dead. We were born into this world without our God indwelling within us. And that is a problem. We need to believe that the Lord Jesus is the Messiah, but also that he is the Messiah who offers to us the free gift of the Holy Spirit that had been lost. And once we receive that, this is the Jesus who has given this life to us, and this life will never be lost because he died for all of our sins all of our sins, past, present, and future, all of the sins of the entire world. So there is no sin that will cause 
the Holy Spirit to depart from within us in the event that we do sin again. And so by definition, this life that we receive is an eternal life. And so believing in Jesus is believing in the person who will give to you the Holy Spirit so that you can be saved. And once you are saved, you can never be lost. You are a child of God, born again by his Spirit, and you will forever have a place in the kingdom of heaven. But the people in Ephesus, they only knew about the baptism of John, which meant the water baptism. It was the baptism that John the Baptist presented. Now, I presented the subject of baptism in detail in another series, the subject of baptism, the history and purpose of baptism. And so I would like to encourage you to listen to that series in order to gain a better understanding of the subject of baptism. At this time, I'm only going to summarize that the baptism that John presented was a baptism of repentance, which meant to turn away from a life of sin and turn to a life of obedience to the Mosaic Law. That when John the Baptist was baptizing, he was baptizing Jews, not Gentiles, which was suggesting that the Jew was just as unclean as the Gentile, that the Jew needed to repent as a Gentile needed to repent. And what they needed to repent from is they needed to repent from their sins, which means that they need to stop sinning and start obeying the commandments of God. It was a baptism of renewing a person to a life of obedience under the Mosaic Law. And so if these people were baptized into the baptism of John, then that means that these are people who have been committed to who have dedicated themselves to living a life in obedience to the Mosaic Law with greater enthusiasm because they believe in Jesus as the Mosaic Messiah, who has demonstrated his deity by resurrecting from the dead. But what would be missing in this transaction is that John the Baptist said that he was baptizing in water so that he could identify the person who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. And that is the baptism that is of importance, not the baptism that we go through in water, but the restoration of the Holy Spirit being immersed by, immersed in, immersed with the Holy Spirit. That was the complete testimony of John the Baptist. So when these folks were baptized with the baptism of John, it says in verse 4, this is Acts chapter 19, verse 4, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is in Jesus, When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, here in Acts chapter 19, verse 5, it says that they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, but this does not mean that they had to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and it also does not mean that there is any value in being baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. It just says that this is what they did, which means that the people decided to go through another baptism in water, only as a means of dedicating themselves to their more correct understanding of who the Lord Jesus is and who they are converting to, what they are converting to, what they are now going to actually believe in. But please understand that just being baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus does not save anybody and does not give anybody any greater advantage than somebody who is not. It's only to say that at one point they were baptized in John's baptism, which technically would mean that they were baptized into Judaism. Because baptism was used by the Pharisees before John the Baptist as a means of converting a Gentile to Judaism, John the Baptist showed that a Jew should also be converted to Judaism. These people, believing in Jesus, think that they need to first become a Jew in order to properly be identified with the Jewish Messiah, only to discover that he was there in order to present another baptism, which was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So they are now going to be identified with 
the Lord Jesus by converting through the same ritualistic process of water baptism, but once they have done that, they still are not saved. It is only when they receive the Holy Spirit that they are saved. When you continue to read in verse 6, it says, And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying which is to say that they did not receive the Holy Spirit before they were baptized in the name of Jesus. They did not receive the Holy Spirit because they were baptized in the name of Jesus. And they certainly did not receive the Holy Spirit because Paul laid hands on them. Because, of course, there are many people who were saved before they were baptized in water. There were many people who were saved who apparently were never baptized in water, never baptized in John's baptism, never baptized in Jesus' baptism, There were people who got saved even though nobody laid their hands on them. This is just a description of the events that occurred. It doesn't mean that this is the formula for how you are saved. This is just the description of the events as they unfolded. Otherwise, you've got too many contradictions in the scriptures. You are never going to be able to come to terms with what is the means by which a person is saved because of all the variation that exists within the book of Acts. There are too many circumstances that contradict one after the other. Now, I do realize that there have been some attempts to try to reconcile these differences. For example, there's dispensational theology, which has made a very good attempt. I believe as an academic exercise, they've made a very good attempt and come to a reasonably good conclusion. But I'm taking a very different approach. My approach is to look at the scriptures from a historical and cultural perspective, not from a theological perspective, but to understand that the people in the church did not have all the answers right away The apostles did not have it all together right away, and that it was not a matter of God having to change his mind. It was about the people discovering the truth that God had established and that he had never changed. Consider, for example, Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 12, we have a similar situation with Philip. In Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 12, it says, But when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ... They were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them, They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Just like in Acts chapter 19, the people had only heard of the baptism of the Lord Jesus or being baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, but they still were not saved either. Being baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus does not save you. Salvation is the restoration of the Holy Spirit. It is not about being dunked in water. The water baptism was used by the Lord Jesus in order to describe to us the baptism of the Holy Spirit that actually saves us. Now again, in Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 6, it says that they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. Now according to the definition of tongues in Acts chapter 2, this means that they began to speak in a language that they knew. However, The Apostle Paul, or somebody else nearby, was hearing them in a language that they did not know. And so while the people who were just saved would be speaking clearly in a language that they knew, 
the Apostle Paul or somebody else would testify that the miracle of salvation has occurred because the living God would present testimony to all of them of this fact by miraculously interpreting between the speaker and the hearer so that the hearer would hear in another language a language that the speaker was not speaking in, but that the Lord would perform a miraculous translation in order to confirm that these people were not saved before, but they are definitely saved now. And of course, the subject of tongues is a very big subject, and so I would like to refer you to the series of programs that I have done on the subject of tongues I address that subject with great detail in the programs that I've done previously. I'm just going to speak about it in generalities here and proceed through this chapter, Acts chapter 19. Proceeding through, beginning in verse 7, it says, There were in all about twelve men. Twelve people. It is as if this is a huge event. Being recorded in the scriptures, you start to think that perhaps this is a big event with many, many people. Well, it is a big event, but it is a big event with a small number of people. It's only a dozen people. It's not like some major megachurch of thousands of people who were immediately responding to this or who were talking with the Apostle Paul. It was a dozen people, but the number of people is not what is important. It is the truth that is important. It is the conveyance of the truth that is important. That somebody may be saved is what is important, no matter how many people are saved it is more important to see that somebody gets saved, that somebody responds to the message of the gospel. In verse 8, this is Acts chapter 19, verse 8, it says, And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus, This took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So the Apostle Paul returned to Ephesus, spoke with the people in the synagogue that he had spoken with before when he was ending his second missionary journey. This is the beginning of his third missionary journey. He has returned, he spoke with them for three months, and eventually people made their choice. People made their decision with regards to what they were going to believe, if they were going to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, or not believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And when the decision was finally made, Paul withdrew himself and pulled the disciples away from the synagogue with him, and for two years in another location, he worked with them, discipled them, equipped them, which meant that he continually directed them to live a life of dependency on the Lord Jesus. So at a certain point, he would be able to leave and they would be able to continue to grow and mature in their personal, individual relationship with the Lord Jesus that would be very well established, assuming that they would believe the fundamental truths of the gospel and the implications of being set free from the law so that they can live a life according to the grace of God. Now, after this, the Apostle Paul continued to reach out to people. He continued to minister to people, beginning In Acts chapter 19, verse 11, it says that God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. So the Lord continued to work many miracles through the Apostle Paul, and many people experienced physical healing, many people experienced freedom from evil spirits. This is certainly a wonderful thing, but again, the most important thing for a person to understand 
is that the objective is not to have a physical manifestation or a miracle of some kind, or even for somebody to be set free from a demon. The real objective is for a person to know the Lord Jesus, to know their God. That is the true objective that the Lord our God has in reaching out to us, in reaching out to us to have a relationship with us, not just to benefit our flesh, but to heal the pain and the suffering that we have experienced in our heart. Those are the real healings that I believe have greater significance because they are truly more eternal in nature than just the temporary healings of the flesh. But then in verse 13 it says, But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Well, now, who are these guys? Who are these Jewish exorcists? What is a Jewish exorcist? The Jewish exorcist was an individual. He was a priest, and these people were the seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish priest who were doing this. That's what it says in verse 14. There were Jewish priests, or sons of priests. There were people who sincerely believed that they could cast out demons. Now, they may very well have been able to cast out demons. I certainly was not there. I certainly cannot place an absolute judgment on this because I am not God. I certainly am not the one who has been given authority to evaluate these things. But what I do know is that there were Jewish priests, mainly of the sect of Pharisees, who sincerely believed that they could cast out demons, and it could very well be that the demons gave them that belief by withdrawing voluntarily, that they may not have been cast out at all, but that they gave the impression that they were being cast out in order to give greater authority to the Pharisaical priests, because there is a lot of bondage that a person can find themselves under if they do live in obedience to the Pharisaical laws, because pursuing a lifestyle of obedience to the Pharisaical law is going to lead a person nowhere except further away from the Lord and further into sin, because they are further away from being accepted by the Lord because of what Christ Jesus has done for them. And so it gives credibility to an individual who is proclaiming something that isn't true, and I sincerely believe that a demon could take advantage of that by giving the impression that the person has greater spiritual authority, authority by the living God, when in reality they don't. The Jewish exorcists, they actually had a procedure by which they would cast out a demon. The way that this would work would be that they would engage in conversation with the individual who had the demon within them. And in the midst of the conversation, they would incite the spirit to surface and speak through the individual. And through communicating with the individual or with the demon behind the individual, they would eventually identify the name of the demon. That was the first step involved in the exorcisms that they performed. The second step in the procedure to perform the exorcism was to then use the name to demand that the demon depart from the individual in the name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that that was the means by which they would cast out a demon. So when Luke records this in verse 13, it says, But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits. That's a subtle wordplay to say that they were not only trying to identify the names of the spirits, but they were also using the name of the Lord Jesus on the spirits once they identified the name of the spirit. That's a subtle wordplay that's placed there that's difficult to catch unless you understand how the Jewish exorcists proceeded to try and cast out demons. This is a very important issue, especially 
to understand one of the miracles that the Lord Jesus performed as described in Matthew chapter 12, when the Lord Jesus cast out the demon from the man who could not speak, see, or hear. And then subsequently after that, the religious authorities officially rejected the Lord Jesus as the Messiah, and he completely changed his mode of ministry before the people, whereas beforehand he performed miracles, signs, and wonders in order to assert his messianic identity. But then after that, he only performed miracles and set people free from demonic bondage according to the personal needs of the individual, not for the purpose of asserting his messianic identity. I explained this in detail in the first program that I did on accounting for the three days and three nights in order to describe the circumstances by which he claimed that he would be in the grave for three days and three nights. And so I would like to encourage you to listen to the programs that I did on accounting for the three days and three nights in order to get a better understanding and an appreciation for Jewish exorcisms and how that relates to this passage in Acts chapter 19 to Matthew chapter 12. But of course, the attempted exorcism did not work out very well at all for these people who decided to try to use the name of the Lord Jesus to cast out these spirits. In Acts chapter 19, verse 15, it says, And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. So things did not turn out very well for the Jewish exorcists. However, as a result of these kinds of miracles, what took place was that there were many people who confessed their sins, they confessed their evil, they recognized that there really is a true and living God who is distinct, who is different from the gods that they were believing in before. And there was such a dramatic effect here in Ephesus that there were people who gave up a lot of their wealth It says in Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 18, that many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and founded 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. 50,000 pieces of silver, that's a lot of money, that's a lot of labor in order to earn these books, in order to produce these books. This is a revolution that is unfolding that leads other people to feel very worried and, of course, very insecure. But I'm out of time in this broadcast, and so I will continue in Acts chapter 19 in the next broadcast. You've been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80937 or use the donation link on our website, livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net.